Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. This week we have a little bit of a different setup uh, because um, the uh, clip-on, uh, what are called uh, lav or lavalier microphones, uh, mine just broke, so I ordered some new ones, but they haven't arrived yet. So I'm using my podcast microphone this week, and so I had to put the camera in a bit of a different place, and that's why the different setup. Uh, let's see. I uh, did a great podcast with John Atack this weekend. Uh, just went up yesterday. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. There's some very interesting information there about followers and leaders and Scientology and cults in general and, and lots of other things, because when I talk with John, he always is a wealth of references, <laughs> very well-read man, and uh, and we talk about all kinds of stuff like that. And of course, if you haven't seen my video this last week uh, on Thursday, where I take up uh, with some finality the question of, you know, um, it is worded lots of different ways, but basically the question is, what kind of a moron do you have to be to get involved with a cult like Scientology? Uh, and sometimes that question is honestly asked, and sometimes that question is not so honestly asked. So I answer both uh, in that video, so check that out too. And one other thing I want to let you guys know about is we are getting really close again to the $1,000 mark on my Patreon uh, page. And if we hit that and can stay there, then, uh, then I will start doing a um, regular Google Hangout with my patrons uh, exclusively. And that is the first time I've offered anything just for my supporters. Um, and we could do that, you know, uh, every so often, maybe once every two weeks or something. I, I can't remember what I put on my Patreon page for that. But if that is something you're interested in, uh, having more access to me, uh, that was something I thought of as a, you know, as a, a, a there, there are tiers or, or levels of, of reward or goals that you can hit in Patreon. And so that was one that I thought of. Uh, that I thought people might be interested in. And if not, then, you know, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. Uh, I'm not putting myself up on some pedestal or something that I'm somebody really special to talk to, but but some people would like to get access, and that would be a way to do it. Uh, and also, of course, that would be a direct way for you guys to give me your feedback and input and ideas, too, on my channel and the subject and uh, my podcast and things like that. So I would uh, love to develop our little community here more by doing that and by supporting me on Patreon. You do support this channel and my ability to do this more often, you know, do this full time and uh, get you guys this content. So that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Barney Sanders. You mentioned in a recent podcast that you first began to criticize the Church of Scientology online using a pseudonym, but that the Church was nonetheless able to deduce your identity. You also said that they were quite sophisticated on the internet in tracking down their critics, or something to that effect. Could you tell us a bit about your personal story here and Scientology's online capabilities in this regard? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when I first started posting. I posted on the ex-Scientology message board, and uh, it's forum.exscn.net uh, is, the, is the link to that. And that was a great resource to meet up with people online uh, in an anonymous setting, re relatively so. Everybody uses pseudonyms for the most part. 
and discuss, you know, my recent departure from Scientology or my thoughts and feelings about it at the time because I was still kind of involved. And kind of going under the radar is sort of the status that they give for people like that who are not really acknowledged as being out of the church and yet still, you know, still connected somehow and yet not really part of it anymore, you know, at least mentally. So I was posting under this pseudonym, I Hate Duplicity. And you can probably still find those posts uh, on ESMB if you're interested. They're from five years, you know, four four years ago. But uh, but I was I was pretty pretty jacked. I was pretty upset, and I was posting some things uh, to try to you know get some steam blown off and 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 get questions answered and figure out where to go and what to do. And um, and then I was also started writing some articles for Mike Rinder's blog. Uh, and I then took on the pseudonym Galactic Patrol. And uh, I took that because I thought that um, that E.E. Doc Smith's books were kind of cool. I didn't take it because of any association with Captain Bill Robertson. <laughs> I found out after the fact that he had some association with this Galactic Patrol thing. Um, anyway, that was, the, that was what I was posting under. And I uh, later found out that I had given away too much in some of the um, information that I was giving out on ESMB about what was going on with Scientology internally, because I was fresh off the boat, so to speak, and I had all this fresh information. Uh, At the time, this was in 2013. The Golden Age of Tech Phase 2 was the big new release for Scientology uh, that what they were training people for that year, and I knew someone, my my then fiance was down there at Clearwater getting trained on this new stuff, and I was getting information from her, and I was passing some of that information on. Um, but they'd already figured out who I was at that point because I had also um, become a commenter on Tony Ortega's blog, The Underground Bunker. And I was posting there as Galactic Patrol, and I gave up too much when I told Tony that I had uh, known a person he was doing a story about. That person had used to have been, uh, we were Sea Org members together, and she was a junior to me, and I said as much, and that's how they figured out who I was, because this woman only had so many seniors in the Sea Org, and I really didn't think the thought through very well in putting that out there. And that was the final place where they figured that out. Between that and the information I was giving up on ESMB, they connected the dots and and figured that out. I then later learned from Mark Headley, uh, who had written Blown for Good and who had himself come out, you know, years before, that, uh, that they have a very sophisticated way of trying to figure out who that is posting online uh, when they are dealing with someone who's giving out information that they don't like being given out. You know, they don't do this with every single person who posts online. They don't have the resources for it. But when they start getting interested in somebody who's posting a lot, I would imagine, they start doing uh, language analysis of the person's posts compared to whatever analysis they've already got of their internal files, knowledge reports, staff member reports, write-ups and things that come from Sea Org members. Um, and they compare these things. They have some kind of sophisticated language analysis software that, that looks into this and tries to figure out who is saying what based on how they're communicating, how, they're, how they write, the style of their writing, the words they use, that sort of thing. 
And I was I was fascinated by that. I'd never heard about or knew anything about that sort of thing. That software, of course, exists. And when you have a budget like Scientology does, and you're not afraid to spend liberally for you know anything having to do with security measures, then you know the sky's the limit, right? World's your oyster. And I know that Scientology also, when it comes to security, they are quite paranoid. They have facial recognition software. You know, they have cameras all over the place at their churches, especially on the on the Sea Org bases. I think in the in the local city level churches, they're not they're not quite as sophisticated as they are on the Sea Org bases, where they have a literally have a security force, and they have people who keep an eye on everybody on the base, and they keep an eye on uh, the the telephone communications, their emails, you know, this kind of thing. Their their the letters that they receive. You know, if you are a Sea Org member uh, and you receive personal mail, it's going to be opened before you get it, uh, almost 100% of the time. So that is, uh, you know, some of what they invest their money in in order to just basically have a have a total information control over the, you know, who's saying what where within the world of Scientology, right? I don't know... Uh, personally what other software I oh there is one other thing I can speak to which is um, phone uh, you know like, like getting into phones and uh, they can re- retrieve deleted text messages and emails and that sort of thing on a phone because that happened also um, when it when it came out that I had been you know posting online and I admitted that I had been doing that um, my fiance at the time, not my current one, but, but this is back in 2012, my Scientologist fiance was down training at Flag, like I said, and when they found out about our connection, they took her phone and found out more about our connection, right? They thought we were just friends, and we'd been sort of keeping our dating situation on the down low because I was getting through my conditions and all this kind of thing, and and uh, anyway, that was not appreciated <laughs> when they found out about that. That was like, you know, and, uh, and they found out about that by getting her phone. And she had deleted all her text messages. She had deleted all of our communications, but they found it anyway. So, uh, so that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff they spend their money on. And that's what I can speak to about that experience. Dylan Ames. A longtime Scientologist friend of mine and I were walking by the Center for Blind People and one of them needed help with directions, so I helped them. My Scientologist friend commented that he had no sympathy for, quote, those people. I can't remember what explanation he gave, but how would a Scientologist explain disabled people? I mentioned, I think, a couple weeks ago, something about the this whole idea of, of karma. I think I was asked about karma or something, and I talked about how Scientologists have this idea of pulling things in, Right? They don't have the idea of, of karma as such, but they have the idea that, that you are responsible for, um, and maybe this is karma. You know, I mean, I've had a couple comments that, that, I, that this is very karmic. Um, but they have this idea that because you are responsible for your condition um, and that you're basically good, you're basically, as a spiritual entity, you, are, you basically have good intentions and want yourself and others to do well and, and be productive and positive. Um, that 
if you do evil, if you do bad things, and you know you're doing bad things, that you reverse that on yourself in some sort of self-karmic way, right? Uh, and this is called pulling it in. And so when Scientologists see, the, and, oh, and, and even more specifically, Hubbard's, Hubbard says in a number of places that people with disabilities or people who have something wrong with them that the person is doing that themselves because they are trying to stop themselves, literally disable themselves, from being able to commit further crimes or harmful actions against others. So if, um, and, and, and it might relate directly, not always, it doesn't have to directly relate to the kind of crime they were committing or the kind of harmful actions they were committing against others. But Hubbard implies and sort of infers and says that, that it will be, you know, in kind, right? It'll be similar kinds of things. So, for example, if a person, uh, and, and, oh yeah, and the last thing is that this goes into past lives, Okay, it doesn't have to be a this lifetime thing that you are paying yourself back for or pulling in some kind of badness on yourself or disability on yourself. It could be that you're doing that because last lifetime or two or three or four lifetimes ago, you had a pattern of conduct that was quite harmful and quite, quite uh, you know, not, not, not helpful or beneficial to other people. So, for example, okay, let's say that you know, a thousand years ago or whatever, you were, uh, you know, or, or 700 years ago, you were a, a torturer, right? You tortured people. That was your job. And so you, uh, you, you gouged people's eyes out, okay? This is just a stupid example, but this is how Scientologists think of this, right? Let's say you were some horrible person and that was your job and you really got off on it and you thought it was fun to do that. And you were gouging people's eyes out, right, as part of your torture techniques or whatever. And after a while, it started dawning on you that maybe this wasn't such a good thing to be doing. And you somehow, um, you know, pulled in some kind of disability with your hands. Or maybe you burn yourself one day and ruin one of your hands or something so you can't gouge people's eyes out anymore, right? Uh, but... To continue the payback, right? To continue the, you know, pulling in bad things on yourself because you feel as a good spiritual being so bad for what you've been doing to all these people. Maybe in your next life or your next one or your next one, you pull in a disability like blindness, right? In other words, you're responsible for having a body that is somehow spiritually been messed up right, in the womb maybe, right, or somehow you, you, maybe, maybe it's not even you who caused the disability, but maybe when you assumed ownership of the body, you took that body because the baby, the, you know, the fetus was already congenitally blind, and you, and you took that body on, and you said, I'm going to take this one because this is what I deserve, I pulled this in, and you then are born blind and you, you know, you're blind for the rest of your life, right? Because of, and you, fe you feel spiritually that you deserve this because of what you did, you know, all those centuries ago. So, uh, so there's no specifics in Scientology about how much time has to pass before you would do something like this. Uh, could be this lifetime, could be next lifetimes. Um, and there isn't any real specificity as to how exact the payback is going to be, 
but Scientologists kind of, you know, relate these things together, right? Like, oh, you were gouging people's eyes out, so of course you're blind, right? Or you were, you know, uh, ruining people's eardrums, and so you're deaf, right? I mean, this kind of thing. Or you're, um, you have dietary issues or problems of some kind. You have a, you know, r- real problem with your digestive system or something. Well, that's pulling it in or, uh, you know, something you've, you've uh, uh, created in your current life in your current body because back in the day you used to starve people to death okay it's something like that right so all of these you know these things you i think you get the idea of how these things work and that's pretty much as i understand it how most scientologists i think would explain uh disabilities right and and why they feel that those people are not particularly, dis- disabled people are not particularly deserving of anybody's sympathy or compassion or support. And that's horrible, but that's Scientology. Martin Blue. The question of the usefulness of Scientology has raised its head periodically. In one of my earlier messages to you, I asked if the workable parts could be sifted out and implemented in a different context, i.e. with a different management or administrative structure. I write this without resurrecting my old message, but your answer went heavily into two areas. One, the techniques are available elsewhere or were outright plagiarized to begin with. Two, the evil aspects of the operation of Scientology, mainly disconnection and fair game, disqualify any attempt to salvage or implement any aspect of Scientology technology. A point I failed to raise or emphasize is that any implementation of methods or technology should unequivocally be divorced from the abusive ethics and justice practices. Secondly, a major value in what Scientology slash Hubbard offers is that everything is in one place, sifted down to a set of elements that, if they were to be sought in the diverse locations wherein they unquestionably exist, would be much more difficult to obtain learn, and teach. Also, much of what Scientology offers nicely packaged in one place is not valid per your investigations, so there would have to be a winnowing process to find an acceptable body of useful techniques, such as the Success Through Communications course instead of the TR 0 through 9, maybe a hybrid. Yes, such a reorganization of the technology would entail a lot of work, but there may be sufficient numbers of trained ex-Scientologists willing to tackle such a project. Your updated thoughts? Or are you sick to death of answering variations of this question? Well, I do feel like I have made myself pretty clear about this, but um, not to repeat myself over and over and over again, the points that you bring up are in, in your question are pretty much still how I feel. And um, I will say this additionally. Um, Scientology is something that L. Ron Hubbard says is a whole body of techniques and methods and administrative procedures and ethics and justice and, you know, the Office of Special Affairs, and all of this is one big mix. And he says in Keeping Scientology Working that you need all of it and you need to do all of it exactly as he wrote or it doesn't work. So uh, my take on it has always been you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna be true to Hubbard's words as a Scientologist, then you have to follow what Hubbard says. Otherwise, you're not doing Scientology; you're doing something else. And L. Ron Hubbard would be the first in line to condemn you up and down one side and down the other for doing so, 
because he would call you a squirrel, right? If not an outright suppressive person. So, so that's, you know, so any loyalty that a person might feel toward Hubbard as an independent Scientologist or as a person who's left the church and still regards Hubbard's works as pure and good and wonderful, um, it's kind of an all or nothing thing, right? If you're going to take Hubbard at his word, you got to take all of his word. Now, if we dump that, right, as a requirement, and you go, no, no, I'm not, I'm not saying Hubbard was always right about things, well, then it's anything goes, right? Whatever you think worked for you, take it, right? And if it didn't work, dump it, right? I don't care. I got, I got nothing on it. Um, you know, I, I don't take any of it personally because I find so many holes throughout so much of it that I don't particularly feel there's enough there of any unique value to bother with all that work, to sift through all of those thousands of pages of, of uh, Hubbard's bulletins and the thousands of hours of lectures that he gave to find, you know, a couple pieces of, of common sense advice that might be helpful to some people. I don't see the point. You know, that's kind of my view of Scientology at this point. And I've done a lot of work to lay out in video form, um, the, you know, in this Basics of Scientology series that I've started doing, what, are, what I feel the pros and cons of his study technology, the purification rundown, the ARC triangle, I've covered that, right? Uh, the next one's going to be on the tone scale. I'm putting that together now. All of this has little bits and pieces of it that might sound good or make sense. But when you recognize the bottom line for me of Scientology is this. It doesn't produce the results it promises. It doesn't come anywhere near producing the results it promises. Not even close. And in any circumstance, under any conditions, does it do that, right? The TRs, people always fall back to the TRs, the training routines, right? Which are the drills that you use and uh, to learn about communication. <laughs> they're not that great. You know, you know, people have, people come into Scientology, they sit down, they do these drills with each other so they can learn how to look at somebody else and they can learn how to say something to somebody else that'll be heard, and they learn how to acknowledge somebody else's communication. So that if somebody says, how you doing? They go, fine. Right? They answer them. And that's about it. I mean, that's about the usefulness of those TRs. Do you really need to have those TRs winnowed out, as you say, or culled out of Scientology and put together in a course in order to learn how to do those things? Or can you just go, you know, I think I should look at people when they talk to me, and I think maybe I should answer their questions, uh, and I think I should talk in such a way that they hear me, right? Is that really that hard? No, it's not. You don't have to sit for hours on end staring at another person in order to realize that it's okay to look at other people in the eye when you're talking to them, <laughs> right? That's about the only value you get out of that. So I don't see that value in, the, in that some people see in a lot of the, the tech of Scientology. And that's why I'm now making this series to break all this down very specifically, right? There will be a whole video on Hubbard's ideas about communication and those TRs, right, for example. And I'll talk about that in more length when I, when I actually break it all down and analyze it. Uh, so that's kind of my view on it is I don't think there are enough little gems of genius inside Scientology to, 
to make it worth anyone's while to go through and sift through and pull it all out, okay? Individual people come out of Scientology with individual wins and gains and subjective experiences that they had. That doesn't mean that the technology of Scientology was responsible for those wins or gains. It doesn't, right? Um, and I wish that could be more clearly seen by people who claim to be independent Scientologists. But whatever, you know, there's so few of them, it's not really my mission to try to go out and convert all of them or, or break them down or something like that, because I really just don't, it just doesn't matter that much. So uh, not in the big picture, not the big wide world. For me, my mission is much more reaching out to many, 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 many more people with information about how destructive cults work and mind control and propaganda techniques and all that kind of stuff. I find that much more useful and, and much more applicable to more people's lives. So I think that should pretty much encapsulate my thoughts on that. Aaron Peters, is Mormonism a destructive cult? I really enjoy hearing you bring your Scientology expertise to other movements. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, Mormonism or the uh, Church of the of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the LDS Church. Uh, yeah, that is a there is destructive cult stuff going on in that group. As I've gone over with uh, Jonathan Streeter and Lloyd Evans, when I've done you know we've done our videos together here, where we've talked about the Jehovah's Witnesses and we've talked about the Mormons. We have said many times that Mormonism is a lighter-grade destructive cult than, say, Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses. There are not as many destructive, outright destructive practices excuse me, in Mormonism as there are in these other groups. But there is enough going on there, and it is enough of an insulated, you know, kind of insular, exclusive community of us versus them and that... I feel that it still fits the criteria. I would, I would not say barely fits the criteria, but it's definitely on the spectrum. It's, it's closer to a non-destructive cult than you know Scientology is. But I would still not recommend anybody be go become a Mormon, right? They're, um, they're, the, the us versus them mentality is, is like I said, is very much there, and also um, the sexual predation and the and and. Sexual predation is not a characteristic of a destructive cult, but the hiding of it, the rationalization of it, the acceptance of it is. That is part of a destructive cult mentality, and that is probably one of the biggest reasons why I would still label Mormonism as a destructive cult, because as, I, as Jonathan Streeter and I went over in our, very, in our last podcast just a, a month or so ago, uh, where we talked about this, the um, the LDS Church is very much engaging in covering up and and justifying and rationalizing uh, very intrusive, sexually intrusive behavior towards children, and that's not that's not cool, right? It's just not. It's not. Sorry, <laughs> it's not okay. So uh, so anybody who you know, if you're out there thinking that I don't know what I'm talking about, or that I'm you know, if you're somehow feeling apologetic toward the, toward Mormonism, because you haven't experienced those things, fine. I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that every single Mormon is an evil person or something, and, and, and in any way that more than I would say every Scientologist is an evil person. I'm talking about a systemic situation here, not an individual parishioner situation. So I hope that's clear. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go near uh, 
the Mormons, <laughs> particularly as far as joining up with that group or something like that. They have a ways to go still until they have fully acclimated into society without any destructive cult characteristics. Hamish Downey. Why do you think that Excalibur was never released? It seems like Miscavige is a bit desperate to create new levels, and it would seem like releasing this book would be another way of generating income. Well, yeah, it would be, except there is still plenty of stuff in Scientology that Miscavige can uh, go over, republish, repackage, put back out there newly without having to dig deep into Excalibur. I have never seen a copy of the book, nor have too many other people, and I've done quite a bit of research to see as much as I can find out as much as I can about it. But what, I'm, what I have been told is uh, that it's not even necessarily a wholly edited and, put, and well put together manuscript. It's more like notes and, and, and research notes and things like that. Now, that may or may not be true. That's, that's you know, I have very limited uh, information and very limited access to anybody who has actually had the manuscript in their hands. But I think it would require quite a bit of editing. I mean, Hubbard wrote the whole thing. He didn't give it to an editor before he offered it to various publishing houses. And, you know, none of the publishers that he offered it to wanted it or wanted to have anything to do with it. And I understand that it reads a little weird, right? There's only one write-up I could ever find from a guy named Arthur J. Burks about what's in Excalibur. And I published that uh, in my book, uh, Scientology at Izinu. There's a whole write-up on this in there. And, uh, and it sounds like Hubbard was, you know, had some kind of interesting ideas that one could look at Scientology as it was developed later and say, well, that information Hubbard developed later kind of contradicts or runs up against some of what's what Arthur J. Burks was talking about, for example. And so, you know, Miscavige might be looking at Excalibur and going, yeah, no, I don't think I really want to open up that can of worms, right? They have published, or they claimed to publish, one chapter from Excalibur in one of the uh, what are called Ron Mags. There are these these, these uh, biographical magazines where which focus on different aspects of L. Ron Hubbard's professional life. Uh, there's Ron the writer, Ron the sailor, Ron the or Ron the master mariner. They call it Ron the poet, right? Ron the lyricist, which goes over his songs that he wrote, and and Ron the music maker. Um, and uh, I think it's Ron the Lyricist, might be in, the mu- in that music maker thing. But anyway, one of those magazines is Ron the Educator, and, uh, and that magazine is devoted to applied scholastics and study technology and everything Hubbard did having to do with education, including this write-up that supposedly comes out of Excalibur. And it was pretty hard to read, as I remember. I don't still have a copy of this thing, but if you're interested, you could probably dig it up online somewhere. I think the church still sells these magazines. And that's the only thing I ever saw where the church claimed that they were publishing something out of Excalibur, the uh, you know unpublished manuscript that Hubbard wrote back in the 1920s. So that's you know all I could really say about that. I think... Uh, I don't think they're ever going to put it out, and I don't think Miscavige is suffering for lack of material to pub- to put out to Scientologists at all. He's got whole courses and books and all kinds of stuff he could put back out there. So I don't really see that see that happening. 
All right, it is time for Flash Answers. Tom Graham. Hi, Chris. I'll bottom line it for you. What do you think should happen to Scientology? Do you think it is capable of the dramatic change necessary to recover any credibility it might have had, or do you think it is too corrupt to ever be salvaged and should be dismantled? I think that we need to end the abuses of Scientology, and that is our fight and the main line of protest that we have against Scientology. I don't think it's possible to dismantle the Church of Scientology as such, uh, not from outside, not from what we're doing. I think eventually it might be dismantled at some point. But, you know, I've recently learned some things that definitely indicated to me that taking down and dismantling Scientology is not really a very realistic goal. For example, the People's Temple of Jim Jones still exists. Even after the, you know, the, the whole disaster of everybody, you know, drinking poisoned uh, juice or whatever, Kool-Aid, and, and dying, there's still survivors. There were still people around who resuscitated this work. And are, and are still going, right? The Branch Davidians are still around. The guys down in Waco who got you know, annihilated by the FBI and ATF, they're still around, even with David Koresh gone. So I think Scientology is always going to be around in some fashion. So instead of directing our efforts toward destroying it or dismantling it, we really just need to concentrate and focus our attention on ending the abuses, the human rights abuses and civil rights abuses that Scientology perpetuates on its members. And by doing so, we, you know, that's mission accomplished as far as I'm concerned. Elmo, couldn't there be an effort to place ads on Twitter, Facebook, and other social media? Ads that very politely acknowledge Scientology with caution? Not hate or slanderous, just mentions of facts. Exact time, place, form, and event items, i.e. church tax status, deaths in Narconon, etc. It could be funded by an online FundMe-type campaign. Depending on how smart the keywords and locales are, these simple ads could pop up anywhere, across any interests much like the billboard Call Me campaign, but only on everyone's screen or smartphone. Yes, Elmo, I think such a thing is a brilliant idea. Please do it. Mark P., does Scientology still give out clear numbers? Mine was in the 3000s back in 1972. Curious what the count is now. Hey, this is my big opportunity to show off my clear bracelet. I still have it. And uh, I had it um, when I, I had it engraved when I first got this back in July 2nd, 1993, when I attested to the state of clear. And my clear number was 42,556. So, that's, uh, so between 1972 and 1993, we had uh, about 39,000 clears made. <sighs> so let's say we've had another 39,000 clears made in the world since then. Just, just hypothetically. I don't think there have been that many, especially since they've been redoing everybody's clear status. But even if there were, and let's say due to attrition and mortality and that sort of thing, only 50% of them are gone or dead or not around anymore or whatever. So that means there's 39,000 clears running around in the world. That is hardly a drop in the bucket of, of a village, <laughs> a town-sized operation, uh, much less a, a city or you know, anything uh, remotely impressive as far as clearing the planet goes. 
So, uh, so there's some numbers for you to, to play around with. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for coming around and uh, listening to me go on at a mad rate with answers to your questions. I hope you found these entertaining, informative, and educational. Uh, again, please consider uh, supporting me on Patreon uh, with the link below on my Patreon page. Uh, your help and your support are what keep me going here and keep this channel going. Thanks for coming around, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.